0: Hello and welcome to Sport Lot, the podcast digesting the best of the week's sports news with interviews and analysis. Coming up, we'll be speaking to Sir Craig Reedy, who's run the World Anti-Doping Agency and the British Olympic Association and is still a member of the International Olympic Committee. Plus, there's some more clarity on the European Championship hosting. We'll tell you who was guaranteed welcoming fans into Euro 2020 stadiums and the four cities who can't offer those guarantees and could be cut still. Also, there's the latest on sport boycotting social media on racism, which team has the highest wage bill in the Premier League, and whether match officials should seek autographs from players. But first, across British sports venues, we've been witnessing tributes being paid to Prince Philip, who died at the age of 99 on Friday. He's a former president of the Football Association, the Marylebone Cricket Club, and perhaps more significantly, the World Equestrian Federation. Where, as president for 22 years, he helped to transform competitions. I'm Rob Harris, and alongside me, as ever on Sport on Lot, is Martin Ziegler. Welcome to the pod. How are you assessing sports' response to the death of the Duke of Edinburgh?
1: I think, uh, I mean, as you would expect on a, what is a, a, a fairly big moment of history, and certainly royal history. Um, there's been lots of lots of people saying. Um, their own tributes. I mean, although you wouldn't say he was he was somebody who was um, a very keen football fan. He he was someone who was president of the National Playing Fields Association for 64 years. As you say, he he spent a long time as president of the International Equestrian Federation, and so he certainly knew the value of sport. And um, I think that's that has been reflected by what people have said.
0: And also in the scenes we've witnessed at Sport already in the hours after Prince Philip's death with flags lowered to half-staff, black armbands being worn and two-minute silence being held at Aintree Racecourse on the second day of the Grand National meeting. Also at county cricket matches and also at the Premier League game between Fulham and Wolves on Friday night. The Premier League did originally announce that only a minute silence would be held at its matches across the weekend. They then upgraded their announcement based on government advice to say two-minute silence would be held at all fixtures. Interestingly, we also had England's women's team playing in international on Friday night against France. That did go ahead because the government offered those assurances to sports bodies that they could continue despite Prince Philip's death. But, for instance, the FA said... None of the players or the manager Hegeriisa would be doing post-match interviews, and also coverage of the game was pulled off BBC Four. The BBC Four channel instead showed graphics either pointing people initially to watch new services, which was replicating coverage of Prince Philip's death on BBC One and Two, or to switch and watch the game only on interactive services on the red button or on the BBC Sport website. So. You effectively had programming suspended on BBC4 rather than showing the football. BT did continue to show on their channel the Fulham game, but it does bring into question this whole thing about what the sports bodies do when there is a national tragedy and whether or not to go ahead with things as planned.
1: Interestingly, when the organisers were planning for the London 2012 Olympics, one of the contingency plans they had to make was um, for the, the the Queen dying during the games, because that would have led to a period of mourning and would have actually interrupted the the Olympics quite significantly. Uh, the, the, there isn't the protocol doesn't have that in place for for the Duke of Edinburgh, so the the Grand National will go ahead, other sports events will go ahead, um, but uh, yeah, you know there there are certainly lots of sports bodies who who put their own messages out there this 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 week.
0: Yes, ECB chairman Ian Watmore said that cricket owes Prince Philip a, quote, great debt for his support and passion over many decades. He was instrumental behind the creation of the Lord's Taverners ECB trophy, and he gave it out for 43 years until retiring from Royal Duties in 2017. Also, the World Athletics president, Sebastian Coe, who ran the London Organiser Committee for the 2012 Olympics and Paralympics, said that British sport has lost one of its strongest and on occasion boldest advocates. He said that Prince Philip had an, quote, unflinching view of the role of sport in all our neighbourhoods. That belief will be missed. And actually, news of Prince Philip's death from Buckingham Palace came just as the Tottenham manager, Jose Mourinho, was giving his pre-weekend news conference. Let's take a listen.
2: I'm just sorry because I just read uh, uh, some sad news about uh, Prince philip uh, so I would like to to express my condolences to the royal family and to to be very honest and say that I have deep 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 the utmost respect for the royal family so my deep condolences and i i believe that is not just uh, this country that is going to be sharing these feelings because i'm not english and uh,
0: i know that many like like myself we have the utmost respect well not only were premier league managers reflecting on the death of prince philip but they were also talking about clubs boycotting social media. This comes after Swansea became the first leading side on Thursday to announce that they were quitting Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and other platforms for a week over the ongoing racial abuse being directed at their players. Their announcement was swiftly followed by Birmingham City and also the Scottish champions Rangers announcing they were coming off the social networks as well for a week no posting at all do we think this is the start of a sustained campaign by the clubs we've not really had much of a response by the social media firms to these boycott announcements
1: yeah a lot of managers have addressed this um, social media issue in their press conferences this week it's uh but as you say that the social media platforms I think have been hoping the story goes away because it's uncomfortable for them it's it's the very last thing they will want. I I, what we're not seeing so far is is a sort of unified stance from from Premier League clubs. Um, I think it's uh, the Premier League themselves are in quite a lot of conversations with the platforms. They're not pushing hard for some sort of sustained boycott. But I, I, I actually think that will happen unless there is some sort of improvement in this, because things appear to be getting worse and there doesn't seem to be really, really strong, noticeable action to to tackle it. So I think we can see this building in momentum if the social media platforms don't take a much more proactive approach to this.
0: We saw Tottenham's Davison Sanchez targeted with racial abuse after their game at Newcastle on Sunday. He had monkey emojis posted to him and they were still there on Monday morning, despite the fact that Tottenham had highlighted the abuse in a statement on Twitter. He himself had mentioned it. And when I asked Facebook about this as the Instagram owners on Monday morning, they said um, that the um, the abuse had been removed. And in fact, it hadn't been. And then they eventually had to say that, um, you know, they're still investigating. So it's incredible the fact that a Premier League club can publicly state, as can one of their players, that they face racial abuse and it's still there the next day on on uh, on Instagram
1: it's incredible they need to close the as soon as there's a report the first thing they need to do is to suspend that suspend that account then they can do their investigations afterwards I mean it is it, absolutely crazy um I, I just I think there's they are far too slack this suggestion that they're not going to punish racists with a, by deleting their accounts permanently is just mind-boggling to me um and to a lot of people so I think football is getting fed up, and understandably so.
0: And Rangers, one of the clubs to boycott the platforms themselves, of course, been touched by their own race abuse. since Glenn, Glenn Kamara in the Europa League in recent weeks.
1: Yeah, he um, he, he reported that he, he was abused on the pitch by a Slavia Prague player, um, Kudela. Uh, Kamara says he, he that a teammate of his overheard him being called... Being called racist abuse, and um, I'm sure that'll be part of the UEFA investigation, and we should hear the outcome of that next week, um, within the next week, anyway. And uh, that will, uh, I think, is going to be a very significant moment either way with what happened, because um, there's been um, you probably heard in, in La Liga, there's been a complaint of player to player racism, which La Liga said that there was no proof of uh so i think that's a big problem for the football authorities if they are being seen to not believe people when they're reporting this i think that, that is a growing problem too
0: and one of the key things is where should the burden of proof lie should it be beyond reasonable doubt or on the balance of probabilities that the judgment is determined
1: yeah absolutely i think i think it's um you know we we know from english football's experience that with 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 John Terry for example, it was balance of probabilities um which the f a took and that's why he was banned, but not beyond reasonable doubt, which is why he was cleared in, in a criminal court um and I think balance of probabilities is something that that if UEFA and other football authorities don't do now then then they need to start doing it
0: and also on UEFA's plate is organizing the rescheduled European championship and In the past week, we've had the deadline pass for cities to submit their plans to be able to welcome fans to the host cities at the Euros, but only eight of the 12 have managed to tell UEFA they can guarantee having supporters by June at their stadiums. So four of them are in doubt, Munich, Bilbao, Dublin and Rome, which stages the opening game between Italy and Turkey on June the 11th. They have been given an extension by UEFA until April the 19th to try to show those guarantees from the government that fans could be allowed entry. But it's looking particularly hard from UEFA's perspective that the Irish authorities will be able to say fans will be coming into stadiums. So that means they and then the others who can't give those guarantees face being cut from the tournament hosting. So that means potentially... Other countries getting additional games, like England, which already has seven at Wembley, including the final on July the 11th. And we've also had quite a few details on which cities will be able to have various configurations of capacities in the stadiums. So the ones that have said they can be at least half full is Baku and St. Petersburg. Then we've got Amsterdam, Bucharest, Copenhagen and Glasgow who say capacities can be at between 25 to 33%. Those numbers could rise based on the progress of the vaccination programmes and infections dropping in their countries. As for Wembley, well coronavirus restrictions are being eased gradually in England and what they're saying from the FA's perspective is they hope for the games in the group stage and the last 16 to have at least a quarter of the 90,000 seats filled at Wembley but they're hoping that by the time of the final there could be at least 45,000 seats filled in Wembley but so much is unpredictable as we've seen with the pandemic with New variants springing up and now Europe on the continent gripped by a third wave of the pandemic in various countries. So a lot on UEFA's plate to try to resolve not just with the four cities yet to give the guarantees about fans going into games but also over all the other venues and also only three of the hosts have so far said they plan exemptions on entry and quarantine requirements for fans. They are Baku, Budapest and St. Petersburg. There will be requirements to get coronavirus testing on entry into those countries, but I think that's pretty much given in various places at the moment. It's going to be the case potentially at Wembley too. But we have seen they have been amongst the most bullish, haven't they, about bringing large numbers back into stadiums, despite the fact, of course, Britain has had the deadliest death toll in Europe from the pandemic, although the vaccination programme is going well.
1: Yeah, it's going to be uh, twenty-two thousand five hundred for for the at least the th- three group matches. Um, they haven't confirmed their final plans for the semi-finals and the final because they're they're hoping they can actually get consider- considerably more, up to fifty percent. And I mean, the the way the the government is uh, is sort of talking about things in terms of vaccine passports, which would be used in a combination with um, lateral flow tests. It could be it could potentially be more. I mean, I think a lot depends on on what happens with, with the infection rate, but the you know the way the vaccination program is going. Um, I think that's given a lot of confidence. <clears throat> so for the first match at Wembley in the of the Euros on June the thirteenth, you're gonna have twenty two thousand five hundred fans there, which is more than twice the what's permitted under the government roadmap because it, it's only ten thousand up until June the twenty first, but they're going to have special status as test events to allow those extra supporters inside.
0: And there was some confusion in Spain because the mayor of Bilbao, his office, did actually say (laughs) this week that um, they were ready to be able to accept fans into the stadium. Then on the same night, on Wednesday, we then heard from the Spanish FA saying, actually, the conditions to allow the return of fans that were being set by the Bilbao authorities were just unreasonable, were unachievable. You know, things like the occupancy of hospitals at the time in June and the number of of COVID infections so Bilbao could still be the uh, uh, cut from the plans and of course Bilbao and Dublin do have the games in the same group question is where do they go to some could go to England but Wembley is not going to get these extra games they've already got seven they can't possibly have 11 games it seems seem over a month so you've got to look at uh, other another location England of course Budapest has been very favoured by UEFA recently for uh, Europa League and Champions League games as well. But actually in Italy, they also said from their FA side earlier in the week that they were hopeful of having fans, particularly because they've got the opening game of the tournament on June the 11th. But then the government's scientific committee started to raise doubts over that. And also there's less certainty still for Munich, who are very cautious as well. They've sent various plans, it seems, to Germany. So this isn't resolved, is it yet?
1: no so i think that the, the germany and italy we haven't had the central government guarantees um i think UEFA are fairly confident that they're, they're going to be all right i think bill bows it looks like it's a tricky one between the spanish fa and the bill authorities as you say um but i think if, if that gets moved it's much more likely that will be elsewhere in spain um i think the spanish fa will are, are, are almost giving an ultimatum to bill bow saying look you're going to lose this and we're going to put it somewhere else in spain unless you um you know, follow follow what the all the other host cities are doing dublin is the big one i think that i think that's um to me i would be surprised if that goes ahead i think it's much more likely those games are going to be moved um and i do think the uk is the most likely destination for them maybe some in scotland maybe some in the north of england um i, I think but pro- possibly tricky to have more in london so yeah it'd be interesting to see could you have st james's park in newcastle and then uh, a couple in 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 Hamden park if the dates are convenient um or all all at james's park maybe somewhere like that the etihad had been raised as a possible alternative but i think they're doing something to their pitch so that that, that wouldn't fit in there and i don't think old trafford is, is is easy in terms of um being able to fit in with uefa's regulations i think somewhere like Anfield where they've had some recent expansion that, that might be possible too.
0: Talking of UEFA regulations and of Manchester City, we've been used to talking about them their finances over the years in relation to UEFA and we have had their 2019, 2020 returns this week. Uh, they do show a big loss, don't they, because of the pandemic, but also their wage bill is pretty interesting as well, isn't it?
1: It's incredible actually. Um, it's gone completely against what's happened with other sort of big clubs in in um, the Premier League. Um, and U- Man United had a massive fall in their wage bill, forty eight million down to two hundred and eighty four million. But um, Man City's have gone up it's a lot. But
0: yeah, yeah three hundred and fifty one million pounds.
1: Yeah, I mean it's eleven percent. Um, yeah, that's a that's a record for um, an English club. And now you know the, the gulf now between man united and man city in terms of that wage bill it is it's enormous but you know it, it, it's it's 60 million plus um chelsea for example that their, their, their wage bill um went down very slightly it's now almost just about the same as manchester united's we still haven't had liverpools yet um but arsenal's also remained um fairly static so it, yeah man city they for whatever reasons have gone into the, the stratosphere in terms of wages
0: at a time when they only won one trophy last season, that was the league cup. So there's no big bonuses for anything like a premier league win or champions league win. Although the accounts do show that those additional transfer payments, signing on fields and loyalty bonuses that could be due based on their success this season could reach 158 million pounds.
1: I know it's incredible. Um, I think it we're probably seeing them actually getting more towards the levels of Real Madrid and Barcelona who have until now been um out, out in front especially Barcelona in terms of their wage bill I mean they've got um they've got Messi who who on his own is is a huge a huge sum um yeah imagine if man city signed Messi in the summer what their wage bill would be like after that um but, or Haaland Or Haaland
2: exactly yeah
0: well it's time to bring in another guest now welcome to the pod sir craig reedy uh
2: good morning nice to see you
0: now sir craig is one of the most experienced administrators not only in british sport but the world he was a successful badminton player who went on to become president of that sports international federation in 1992 he became chairman of the british olympic association He also became a member of the International Olympic Committee, a position he holds until this day. He was also knighted and went on to become president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, becoming involved in so many of the most controversial issues of our time in the last decade. Sir Craig, we'll look back at some of those key moments in your career, but particularly the last year, Is this the most disruptive year you've ever known in sport with the pandemic cancelling events and also causing so much financial uncertainty as well?
2: Well, the answer, Rob, is yes. (laughs) I mean, you've said it all out. Uh, I mean, in the last year, uh, I'm sorry, but sport across the board has taken the most terrible beating. The IOC have been able to help sport in a big way because the savings that they made from their own uh, commercial successes over the years has been used to support international federations to support national olympic committees uh, and to support athletes and all that's a good thing
1: What, well, craig what do you think i mean the, the looks like tokyo is pressing ahead in at least in some form what do you think it's going to be like
2: Well, the the, the 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 buzzword Martin is different, <laughs> uh, and and that's for sure. Uh, well, f- first of all, uh, for different categories uh, of, of people, um, they we still hope to take the, the full uh, predicted uh, number of athletes uh, from 206 national Olympic committees. But if you think about it, they are likely to be in the village only for certain periods of time, covering their own sport, and then they'll go home. So in a sense, this is a little bit like the wave uh, issue, which works at the the youth games. Um, And that reduces uh, the time athletes will spend uh, in the village. Spectators, international spectators, are not allowed. That's a great shame. I feel particularly sorry for the parents and families of athletes. I mean, it could be the only time their their, their family have a chance of taking part in the Olympic Games and they can't watch it. But from an organising point of view, it's very difficult because actually, again, if you think about it, the the local organizers and the Japanese government would have no control over these people. Uh, Dealing with accredited people only gives you an element of control. So you can impose rules like uh, a clear test before you get on the plane, a test when you get off the plane, uh, transport restrictions, you'll be in your bubble, And with a bit of luck, uh, circumstances will be uh, sufficient in Japan that that can all work. The last time there was um, restrictions in Japan and they came out of it, they were able to put spectators in sporting events. I think both in uh, baseball and the J League, uh, they had up to, at some stage, I think about 30,000 spectators. In, in a stadium. Well, if they could do that and they could get a reasonable percentage of Japanese spectators in, then I think that would add enormously to the games. So it's not going to be easy. Uh, the management of an Olympic team is obviously concerning the British Olympic Association, you know, day by day, minute by minute at the moment, because the BOA have set up their normal, excellent pre-games training facilities, how they look after the athletes, all of that has to work within the, the rules set by Japan. Um, so, at the end of the day, while it's going to be different, I think it's well worth doing for the athletes, because the athletes have been waiting now uh, for a very long time to take part uh, in the games. Uh, 2016 in Rio seems a very long time ago. So let's hope it works.
0: Is it, the third wave of cases across Europe and also new variants, is that the thing that keeps the IRC up at night the headaches over does the does the pandemic take an unpredictable path in the coming months as we had with the Kent variant at, at around Christmas
2: yes it does uh, for sure uh, I mean we would be foolish not to if you look at the Japanese figures their uh, their, their their own experiences Pretty modest compared to some of the European countries. Certainly was modest and compared to British statistics uh, at the worst of the, at the worst of the pandemic. I mean, in one day, uh, you know, Japan had uh, less in Scotland. There are 120 million people in Japan. Um, I think there are indications of slight increase at the moment. And that I think is probably because the virus is mutating there and you're beginning to see, uh, regional problems. Uh, Japan's legislation does not give the central government the right to call a national lockdown. It all has to be done on a regional basis. So that's why you see reports that, you know, people in Osaka are concerned because of their particular figures, uh, and are trying to handle a visit of the torch really accordingly. So yes, it's 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 worrying. The hope is, of course, that um, vaccinations uh, become ever more prevalent for many of the people visiting Japan. Although the Japanese rollout of vaccines themselves is um, is quite modest.
1: Craig, the I, I know it's, you're not involved in this at all, but um, that there has been stories in the last couple of weeks about Wada asking or oh, investigating. Um, a, what UK Anti Doping did back in twenty eleven um, around a, a request by British Cycling to test their athletes' um, blood levels at, at the time. I mean, if that had come through to Wilder at the time, back in twenty eleven, you know, what what would have happened at that time? Is it possible to say? Yeah.
2: Well, I think at that time, what we would have said was we would have passed it to the the National Anti-Doping Organization in the UK. It would have gone straight to, uh, well, in fact, by 2011, uh, I think UK anti-doping had just been formed. I I served on the study group to to, to, to get that done. Uh, Before that, it was the responsibility of the Sports Council. Um, And eventually we got government to understand and pay for an independent doping agency. Uh, At that time, WADA had no uh, investigative powers at all. Uh, Our first investigators were employed from memory, two of them about 2013. And we didn't have powers to investigate ourselves uh, until the new code came in on the 1st of January 2015. So the answer is that uh, if we had, way back in 2010, 2011, if we'd thought that we were, this was of interest, we actually didn't have the mechanics really to do anything about it at all. It would have been passed, uh, it would have been passed to uh, to, to to the whoever was in charge of anti-doping in, in, in Britain. Um, and I'm sure UK anti-doping will be able to answer the questions that they've been asked.
0: Having spent so long particularly seen in Britain us sort of judging on the rest of the world, whether it's Russia or other countries, the spotlight seems to be a lot more perhaps on British sport and particularly cycling. Is that something that concerns you, someone who's been so committed to clean sport and while wanting to see British Olympic success that now there are questions around how how Britain has achieved its sporting success?
2: Well, it's it's it, it, it's disappointing. Uh, if, if if there have been errors, then uh, it, it, it's only fair that we should own up to them and we should try to uh, you know clean our own house, uh, because that strengthens uh, our case if we have an opinion on somebody else's house. Uh, uh, I mean, there is. Uh, my experience of, 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 of Russia over the last few years is there is a very active now social media and, and, and also written media comments, I mean half of the press comments that appear seem to emanate from, from, from Russia. Uh, and they are consistently saying, why us all the time? You know, why don't you go and investigate America? What's wrong with Britain? And it's Britain and cycling in particular that is the subject of these comments. So uh, it seems to me to be almost a natural result of the, the problems that have become public. Um, and it's important that British cycling put them in, put them to bed. But there is enough evidence out there, and there is enough clear evidence uh, that uh, there has been public criticism and those in charge are, must be well aware of that uh, and have to make sure that it doesn't recur.
1: Just to change the subject on, on about Olympic bidding, obviously you were involved in London's Olympic bid heavily. Um, it, it seems now that the, the way the IOC have changed it, it's it sort of basically handing all the power to the president you know to almost to say you know I want this city to be my candidate and that the sort of the general bidding process has completely gone out the window so we have we now have um Brisbane um selected for the as the preferred candidate for 2032 where and you don't have this um you know, bidding process in which all the ioc members almost get a, a sort of much more of a say. Is that a good thing or a bad thing?
2: Well, uh, okay. I thought that the previous bidding process uh, was the the best process uh, for world sport at the time, uh, because it 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 had its weaknesses. Uh, one of the weaknesses were the um, Intense technical details that you needed to investigate in the bidding process, uh, which we didn't do sufficiently thoroughly. I mean, Brazil would be the the, the classic example. But that was the system, uh, and why, why the system worked pretty well uh, once we got over the Salt Lake City crisis and members not visiting and all that kind of thing where it worked quite well is that the very process of having a bid and having an evaluation commission and having people working on it was the best promotion that the olympic movement got out with the olympic games and i was a strong supporter of that if however you then run into a situation that nobody was able to explain why russia spent a figure of 52 billion dollars on a winter games nobody has ever been able to break that one down and explain why and it gave particularly in europe um uh, reluctant politicians every possible answer not to bid for winter games and the ioc will, will will take equal care of the winter process uh, as opposed to the summer process and the winter process of course is restricted now to northern north america northern europe or northern asia you don't have too many options uh, so with that in mind <coughs> and i suspect too the difficulties that occurred in rio when despite every effort they made i mean i was a member of the uh, of the evaluation commission for rio And when we left Rio, we thought this is terrific. I mean, here's this go ahead, uh, well-organized, rich uh, coming country. And you know they fell off the the gold standard very quickly, and their economy slumped. Thereafter, I think it was entirely possible that somebody might take a wider view of the Summer Games. Hence the Paris, uh, Los Angeles decision. Two big, big Olympic cities at the same time. Let's not lose one of them by having that kind of contest. And thereafter, uh, you're in a situation. It started with Agenda 2020. The first subplot on that was the uniqueness of the Olympic Games. John Coates, who ran Sydney and knows a lot about Olympic bidding, was responsible for the thinking there. He then got the responsibility for writing the uh, rules. and uh, he once helped Brisbane lose a bid way, way back uh, in the uh, in the 1980s. So you can put the whole thing together. I think it looks to me as if the new system with much involvement from the. Uh, experts and the greater number of experts that the ISE now have means that you are less likely to make mistakes. Uh, You take less risk. You clearly know what you're going into well in advance is that that system may well work. It's going down very well in Australia.
1: UK sport have got some sort of long-range thinking and and one of of the very long-range ideas is, is potentially trying to bring the Olympics back um to britain in you know we're talking 2040 or something like that and they're a long way away do you think do you think they should look at that seriously or is it to we just think we've, we've had it let, let other parts of the, the world have a go
2: it might well be under the new rules that the ioc has if they haven't changed them by 2040 um that you could come back not with a city bid that you could come back with uh, a country bid it is not beyond the bounds of possibility that there could be different IOC thinking, that there could be a much wider uh, series of venues, uh, effectively linked by television or uh, you know, electronically, uh, so that they're not London games. There could be London games, uh, Birmingham games, Sheffield games, Exeter games, Glasgow games, there's a thought. Um, Edinburgh is a sexy city in Britain, but it's too small to hold an Olympic Games. So uh, the the world's your oysters. But I mean, I don't think anybody should get too excited
0: about it at the moment. Sooner before then, though, Scotland could be part of a World Cup bid as part of the British Isles in 2030. Is that something that you would be behind? Do you think you're more wary of FIFA bidding than, say, IOC bidding?
2: Absolutely, I, I. I mean, I. I have. Um, I have been burnt uh, in that area for years, always up here, uh, because the Celtic Fringe have always been frightened uh, that their individual membership of FIFA would be taken away if it was a British bin, despite uh, me telling them that after a. a very clear meeting with Set Blatter when he said he would never do that. Why would he reduce his number of countries for that reason? It was a nonsense. So I think a British bid uh, for the World Cup would be terrific. Uh, and it would be great if that happened, if all four home countries are five. For Ireland, are you including Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, all five home countries qualified. Yeah, I think I think it would be a really good um, a, a really good thing. Um, I don't know what FIFA are doing uh, at the moment. I, their major challenge, I think, will be to get through Doha uh, in in one piece and successfully.
1: Craig, you're uh, you're, you're a very experienced IOC person you 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 um but you this is your your final year as an IOC member um I know you're you're writing your memoirs what um but you've also been on the receiving end a bit of the IOC when you were Wada president at the Rio Olympics I, I mean I remember you were you, you there, there was a sort of um a, almost like a, a, a face-off between the IOC and WADA over the WADA's action against the uh, against the Russians. And you, were, you came in for quite a bit of um, criticism from other IAC members, or, or WADA certainly did. What was it like dealing with that?
2: Um, well, it wasn't pleasant at the time. Uh, I mean, I've, I, I'm, I'm getting to that bit of the memoir, and I'm going to write that up over the next couple of weeks. We actually had a short executive board meeting before the first day of the session. Um, and Thomas, uh, Thomas Bach uh, said that, you know, there was a, a demand from members to discuss the Russian situation. And I have to say, at that time, I didn't spot uh, what was about to happen. Uh, and what happened was a clear campaign uh, by uh, somebody, uh, some people in the IOC, um, to be very critical of one. Uh, and two or three uh, were personally critical of, of, of me. Um, I sat and had to listen to it uh, until very nearly the coffee break, if you remember, Uh, and I could see what was happening, you know, people were being handed out slips of paper, it was your turn to criticise next, and I was then offered the opportunity to reply. And I decided I wouldn't do that then, I would do it when I delivered the WADA report uh, later that day and did and then did a press conference. Now, a number of the media were pretty irritated with me because I I refused effectively to fight in public. Uh, And by not saying anything, I was very interested to see the world's media the following day. And almost to a man, they were on Wada's side and not the IOC side. So every now and again, silence is golden. Um, It made the Rio games less than joyful. Uh, It took uh, the president of the IOC about 36 hours to start making um, uh, polite uh, uh, inroads into the conversation. Uh, And we resolved the issue face to face uh, in December that year. And what Thomas called a four eyes meeting, uh, and yes, we both came out with two each
0: we've we spent so long talking about things like doping in terms of substances. Do you look at technological doping, things like um trainers, technology, the shoes, and all the the boffins are putting in changing things like trainers that can influence performance? Do you think that's almost the next big challenge in sport in terms of dealing with how technology influences, say athletic performance?
2: And I have to say it's 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 almost always been there. Uh, I, I I mean, people have developed different shoes for which you, on which you can run for years. I mean, you you, you went from boots to spikes, uh, and now you've got some. Hugely expensive mechanism, which apparently allows you to run a little bit faster. Um, if you're a cyclist uh, and you've got really good technology and who designs and builds your bikes, you've got an example. Uh, The rowing skiffs are much, much different now. Uh, There's always been an argument that, uh, you know, the rich countries have an unfair advantage. And in a sense, that's absolutely true. Uh, Most of the time, uh, sport still has uh, some of its great events, which depend entirely on the um, abilities of the individual athletes. Uh, I mean, I'm not a great boxing fan, but boxing must be one of the easiest of sports. If you're fit enough, strong enough and brave enough, the chances are you might win, uh, as opposed to spending, you know, many thousands of pounds on the equipment that you have, which is bound to be better uh, than your compatriot coming from a small country somewhere in Africa, who doesn't have the funding behind him. So it's it's, it's been there. Uh, it is an issue. I think it, Clearly, will be a matter of debate going forward because sports. Don't, um, in golfing terms, for example, uh, there's a real problem with the ball going too far or people hitting it too far. Uh, the, the contrast to that, as I suspect golf will soon find out, is that uh, a, a healthy trade is the sign of a healthy sport. Uh, so, how you balance these two, uh, I think, is a matter of interest, not a matter of a problem.
1: Cooking, Craig. I'm great have you wrong thank you very much um, and good, luck, right. good luck with the memoirs
0: we look forward to reading it thanks so much for joining us Sir Craig Reedy Martin will be getting autographed edition do you think of the memoirs because of course autographs are all in vogue this week because we saw something pretty interesting didn't we at Manchester City after their Champions League game against Borussia Dortmund
1: yeah so the uh, the Romanian um assistant referee Octavian Sovre was um he was filmed in after the match um in the tunnel asking um the Borussia Dortmund striker Erling Haaland for his to autograph his yellow card which is um very very strange behavior and actually has prompted UEFA's head of refereeing Roberto Rossetti to email all the referees on the list saying this is unacceptable behavior and do not do it again and it sounds as though Sovere will um, sort of pay the price in terms of future appointments. Um, it, I, I mean it has the reports in Romania saying he was doing it to, to so it could be auctioned off to raise money for a, an autistic centre um, but I think you know what it, however good the cause is probably, is probably not good enough is, is, is the answer.
0: Yeah, and I was at the Etihad for the game on Tuesday night and someone did come sort of scrambling over, working for City, sort of saying, had you seen this thing? Because obviously it just come up on BTs so that had been across the screens and we were then all sort of scrambling to try to look at the footage. And the thing is, it would be sort of chaos if all referees and match assistants were going to ask for players for their autographs. And I think as Rossetti put it in his uh, email to the, um, to the referees, it's all about dignity. And it's about your status as a referee. And if you are seen to be sort of chasing after the players, then uh, then it does create issues where they try to build up that um, respect. And of course, you know, what what would be an acceptable cause to do so? Well, journalists at stadiums are obviously told not to get autographs. They're told not to get selfies in mix zones as well. And um, it's interesting. I did actually ask. FIFA about this as well. They didn't comment on the direct incident itself, but there was a change to the laws in 2016 that led to more jurisdiction around, you know, not b- beyond the game itself in terms of the referee's actions. And, you know, potentially an incident could have happened in the tunnel. And they said, you know, if a match official after a match considers that a punishable actions have taken place in the tunnel and, and that these actions require disciplinary pr- procedures, then the relevant facts will be. Di- stated directly in the report that the referee completes after a match so of course in that moment in the tunnel he's still on duty isn't he
1: yeah absolutely so he could he could have actually booked harland and then got him to sign his yellow card now that would that would have been worth some money but, but yeah no i think yeah it's generally a no-no i think and it, yeah it is also for journalists i mean i i remember i was at the beijing olympics and there i was there was an interview with. Um, david beckham uh jimmy page led zeppelin guitarist and leona lewis the singer because they were all doing something for the, the london 2012s part of the closing ceremony and um so we had this it was just myself and somebody from reuters um interviewing them and then uh, at the end i was quite it was quite funny because jimmy page and leona lewis both uh, both asked david beckham for his autograph which you'd, you think jimmy page like one of the most sort of you know, incredibly famous rock stars. There he is, asking David Beckham to sign his uh, sign his notebook. Very strange. Well, it's been great to catch up, Rob, remotely um, and uh, go through the, the, the week's ball and, um, well, from next week, we, at least we, are, we might be able to do it in the same pub garden.
0: We might be able to, and we could even have people come and they want some signed autographs or we can sign some red and yellow cards. They can have them, you know, any uh, referees can come and join us.
1: great stuff have a good week
0: have a good week too and to all our listeners as well enjoy the coming week and whatever sport you're watching and if you're enjoying us really grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe to us on whichever platform you're listening to us on now also if you want to check out some extra video clips from some of these interviews the way we film them as well you can find those on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram if you just go to Sport Unlocked and search for us on YouTube as well. We've got clips on there too. And if you've also got any feedback or anything you want us to discuss, you can also tweet, Facebook us, Instagram message us at Sport Unlocked. For now, thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>